You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Now, this is a Melbourne-focused show, but the art sector is kind of connected intimately. We describe it as an arts ecology, something that impacts on the arts in Melbourne may also impact on the arts in Perth, in Darwin and elsewhere. And this week, there's been a bit of impact with the news that two-thirds of arts organisations across the country, which applied for multi-year funding from the Australia Council for the Arts, have been knocked back at the first hurdle. They've been rejected uh, as part of an expression of interest, an EOI program, which means they can't apply for organisational funding for the next four years. For organisations like TheatreWorks in St Kilda, uh, this is fairly concerning and alarming news. But we're going to find out a little bit more about what's involved and what the outcome and the future might be for both arts funding and lobbying uh, and for the organisations concerned. I'm joined on the line by Nicole Bayer, the Executive Director of Peak Body Theatre Network Australia. Nicole, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Richard. So, to begin with, why has the Australia Council uh, asked organisations to put in an EOI to apply for four-year funding as opposed to just saying apply for funding as usual? Oh, good question. Um, Because out of the 400-plus organisations that applied, as you said, um, not a big percentage have gotten through this round. So the Australia Council didn't want that many organisations to go through the whole process of a strategic plan, a business plan, detailed budgets, that sort of thing, which is what will be required at the next stage. It was a much more simple expression of interest process to see whether you might be in the running and therefore whether you should do the work to be taken through to the next stage. Um, it's not a bad process. I mean, it's still a lot of work and in some ways it, you know, adds work to those organisations that will get through, but at least it prevents tiny little organisations who might not have had a chance of getting through, to, to you know, prevents them having to do a big strategic plan. So I can see the in the, the sense of that. It's, it's a time-saving activity and given that putting together a four-year funding application is weeks and weeks of work for organisations and for small organisations yeah. where there might be only one part-time staff member, for example, it, this is an opportunity to, to, to say, well, we've saved you all that time. But it still must be quite dismaying for small to medium organisations who now have no chance of obtaining uh, organisational funding for the next four years. And the, the stats are fairly alarming that uh, so many organisations uh, have now been effectively locked out of the process. What's the impact of this going to be on the sector as a whole, which, as we know, has already been suffered damage from previous funding rounds when funding was removed? from the Australia Council. Yeah. Look, I mean, that, that's, that's the key point, isn't it, Richard? Actually, this is just one program out of a whole lot of different programs um, and, and funding opportunities. Yes, the, big, the biggest problem is there's still 20 to $25 million missing from the Australia Council, which is one of the major sources of funding for arts organisations and individual artists. So this is just one of those programs. And, and the impact is felt more, more greatly because they the people who missed out will have pretty high competition in the project rounds. So, so that's where it's, where it's tricky. But, you know, I think there is a bit of alarmist talk around that is not helpful, actually. So if I can paint a bit of a picture, 
there are currently 124 organisations on uh, four-year funding. So in this in this period, so um, most of those 400 uh, organisations that are put in an expression of interest weren't on four-year funding previously. Um, I mean, in an ideal world, we would be able to grow that and there would be more organisations that can get, you know, stable organisational funding. Um, but it's not as though 400 organisations lost funding that they were previously on. And I, and I think it's important to be accurate about that because the government does listen to us all and if if they look at it and we're sort of twisting figures and, and making it sound dramatic when it's not and we're not telling the facts, then they're not going to believe us when we are telling the facts and, and, and talking about the real impact. Um, I mean, not to say that we don't need to do advocacy, we absolutely do, and we do need that money returned, um, but it's, it's, we have to be careful about uh, the facts and looking at, you know, whether people were already on that and what, what they're really going to what they're going to lose and what's at stake. Can I also give you a picture of who those organisations are around the country? Please do. Is, it, is that useful? Um, I just did some stats and so I just thought that might be handy to share that they, as you said, these 124 organisations are spread across the country. These are the ones currently funded. So there's three in the ACT, there's 32 in New South Wales, seven in TAS, and here in Victoria there's 29. Um, so, you know, it's not high numbers of organisations in, in, in this, across the country. Um, then I'll, I'll tell you about the art form panels that they come from. So it's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island arts, there's community arts, dance, emerging and experimental arts, literature, multi-art form, music, theatre and visual arts, um, with, you know, a range of, like, five organisations in emerging and experimental arts and 24 in theatre which includes circus and physical theatre. Um, so they're not big numbers when you look at it per art form. So, so that's where people are concerned because, you know, in emerging, emerging and experimental arts, there's only five organisations funded right now. So it's very difficult to get into that cohort. Um, and if you miss out, then, um, you know, that's a big impact on that sector. Now, one of the, the the scary things is, I guess, uh, if we talk, if we look at that uh, category of experimental uh, and contemporary practice, for example, organisations uh, like uh, Arts House here in Melbourne, Vital Statistics in Adelaide, uh, Pact Centre for uh, Contemporary Arts, I, uh, I think it's is its full title in Sydney, um, uh, Pika in Perth, and so forth. Uh, one of the challenges is organisations who have got through the EOI process can now apply for four year funding, but with the reduced funding available, I believe there's every op every possibility that in the next, when those uh, the the, the four-year funding is announced, there is now less funding to go around. The organisations yeah. can actually apply yeah. for more funding than they've had in the past in order to yeah. make them more sustainable. So we could yeah. see only three of those five organisations then actually get four-year funding. Well, I, look, I've done some modelling. Um, so... Uh, TNA looked at the current cohort of stats of, of, the, of funding um, and and added on. We used some algorithms um, to look at what they might be likely to be on or to receive at this next um, phase. Because the Australia Council has increased the cap, the maximum that organisations can apply for, from 300 to 500. The, the cap was imp imposed in 2016 because of the. Um, 
terrible funding constraints at that time um, and now they've recognised that that sort of cuts off this sector at its knees and doesn't give us a big, you know, ecology of organisations from tiny up to medium up to the major organisations. So that's a sensible move that they've made. But what that means, you know, our modelling is that there's about seven, at least $7 million that's missing in the pool just to, just to fund 124 organisations. So if we don't get that $7 million or $8 million probably is a less conservative estimate, then there's about a quarter of the organisations that will, will miss out. So, yeah, if you apply that a quarter across those stats that I just told you, so emerging and experimental arts, they'd lose one of the organisations. In theatre, there'd be six organisations who would lose funding a, a, across the country. Um, in Vic, just in Victoria, we'd lose seven organisations. You know, and when you look at who they are, you go, I can't imagine who they might be. And then we have to factor in new organisations needing to come in, and that's really important that we have, we have you know, refreshing of this cohort of organisations that's vital. So... Um, so there is some... There is, yeah, look, there is, you know, I'm, I'm not being alarmist, but I'm, I'm putting the facts out there that we do need that $7 million put in or it will look pretty bad in uh, early next year. How likely is it, uh, just as a final question, that the lobbying that Theatre Network Australia and other arts organisations are doing for government will kind of actually successfully catch the ear of government and encourage the Minister to find an extra $7 million for the sector? Pretty likely, I think. Um, we have a new minister. He's very, he's very open to talking to people. We've sort of meeting with him and sent him this information. Um, the state ministers are also going to be um, meeting together in October. The state ministers meet with the federal minister annually. They will have a say in this. $7 million, you know, it sounds like a lot from the non-profit sector, but actually as a, as a part of the overall budget, it's pretty tiny. Um, and the timing works really well because of budget. So they could commit in, this ne in the next budget um, to, to increasing that money and that would work perfectly well for, for um, the start of that four-year period, which is 2021. So the timing works, there's will there, there's, there's, there's facts showing why we need to invest in, continue to invest in this sector. So I think, you know, I think it's pretty likely we're, we're hopeful. I'll keep my fingers crossed because, as you say, $7 million is really a drop in the ocean given that the Australian federal budget's government is somewhere around $4.1 trillion. So, Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yes, I, don't even, I can't even do the maths on that. <laughs> it's probably less than a drop. Yes. So, well, look, I'll certainly be keeping an eye on the situation. And, uh, Nicole, uh, good luck to you and Theatre Network Australia uh, and all the other peak bodies around the country and all the individual artists and organisations who will be lobbying government. Let's hope that the, uh, the Federal Minister for the Arts does manage to find $7 million somewhere in the budget to... Uh, to return to the Australia Council to ensure that we don't lose any of the currently funded organisations around the country. Thank you, Richard. Thank, well, thanks for your work and thanks to Triple R. Subscribe now. <laughs> uh, if you want to learn more about Theatre Network Australia, www.tna.org.au. You could sign up as an individual member, for example, and support the organisation that then supports the sector. Again, Nicole, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you, Richard. Bye-bye. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. 
something I will not mangle horribly is the name of my next guest. Simon Abrahams is the creative director and CEO of the Melbourne Fringe and last Friday night uh, helped launch the program for the 2019 Melbourne Fringe Festival running from the 12th to the 29th of September and kind of packed with over 455 events to suit every artistic need. Simon, welcome back to Triple R. Richard, thank you so much. How are you? I'm very well. I'm relaxing. It's a rare and unusual thing. I'm on leave from the day job, so uh, I've learned to switch off my body clock and not wake up at 6.30 in the morning. It's amazing. I'm amazing. This is fantastic. Think of all the time for fringe flicking through guides you're going to have. Exactly. So much of it. Why does Melbourne need a festival like Fringe? Why is it an important festival for not just this city but for independent artists generally? Oh, God, there's so many answers to that question. I think for me there's something about Melbourne Fringe because it's open access. It gives every citizen of Melbourne the chance to express themselves, to tell their stories, to have what they, you know, to say what it is that they need to say and that's such a rare and extraordinary opportunity. Um And I think because Melbourne Fringe has been going for so long, for 37 years, longer than the International Festival in its last iteration this year, Um, but I think uh, there's because of the length of time, it means that Melbourne Fringe holds this place for the independent sector where you don't just get emerging artists, even though you've got, of course, a huge a huge bunch of them and next big things, but you've got artists at the top of their game that keep coming back to Melbourne Fringe year after year. It's certainly fascinating every year to see artists who might have a, a dedicated and re- respected practice in one art form suddenly going, right, I'm going to try something new and different this year, or they might go, I'm part of an ensemble, but I'm going to do a solo show this year. That's always fun, seeing pushing people pushing their own personal boundaries and then seeing other artists pushing artistic boundaries. Fringe is sometimes associated with particularly wacky and out there and genuinely avant-garde work. Is that still true? Absolutely. I mean, I think in, across 455 events, you have everything. So there are stand-up comedians doing straight-down-the-line comedy and then there's very strange experimental, you know, performance or um, digital work or all sorts of things that are really at the at the kind of cutting edge. Um, so I think Melbourne Fringe is a place for, for discovery and that can be for audiences discovering new artists or for artists discovering new things about their practice or um, about art forms or people kind of going into new spaces or maybe discovering new things about their city. Now, one of the things that is new about the Fringe this year is a brand new festival hub. It's been the festival hub uh, in previous years for what almost 20 years. 20 years, yeah. Has been the North Melbourne Town Hall. That's right. This year the festival is relocating to Trades Hall in Carlton. Why take the opportunity to, to move suburbs? Is it just about kind of being bored with the previous space or is it more about having access to a venue which... A, is literally on the fringe of the city, but B, then opens up uh, potential for more performance spaces than were previously possible in the, in the old venue. Yeah, there's so many answers to that question. Trades Hall, as a building, if you think about what that building means, it's it's a building that's about rebellion, it's about solidarity, it's about protest, uh, it's about fighting for the common good. They're all kind of values that Melbourne Fringe um, believes in and fights for. 
Um, and the building itself has just gone through a, a restoration that has uh, restored some of the rooms to beautiful old historic states. Um, and it's also had a contemporary kind of uplift. So it's now fully accessible. And um, that's just opened opportunities for us, I guess, to be able to have this beautiful, newly renovated, accessible building, as you say, smack bang in the centre of town, literally on the fringe of the city, um, with 10 performance spaces. The smallest is 35 seats and the largest is 350. Um, so we've got more spaces, more accessible, uh, more central and such a beautiful kind of fit. So, you know, we had a beautiful 20 years in, in North Melbourne. Um, I'm sure there'll always continue to be work that is presented in North Melbourne. And uh, of course, the festival's not just at Trades Hall. It's not just in Carlton. It's right across the city. So there are, you know, performance venues everywhere from, you know, Frankston to Brunswick to Laverton to, uh, of course, to Carlton, right where we are, and still in North Melbourne as well. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the kind of the clusterings of themes and ideas of shows in the festival. Uh, and yes, as we've said, there's boundary pushing work, there's kind of cabaret and circus and more, but... Um, Thematically, I know, for example, there's a cluster of works in which artists are exploring the nine-to-five week, for example, and the grind of working and whether that's... So you've got a tradie cabaret. We do have a tradie cabaret. It's about uh, a performer who started... Uh, you know, his his job was as a as a tradie, um, as a chippy, and discovered in fact that his true love was musical theatre, and he's created a a cabaret show about kind of that transition of career. Uh, there's also uh, a work called Estimated Time Arrival, which is uh, kind of confessionals from the passenger seat of a ride-sharing service. That's right, exactly. So there's, you know, things around Uber. There's a, a show that's a bartender performing behind the bar. Uh, it's a show about working in a bar and then uh, audience members get to sit up at the bar and drink all the way through the show, which I don't know about you, but that sounds like the perfect performing arts experience to me. <laughs> what are some of the other kind of what's the zeitgeist what are the themes that some of the key themes that have emerged from the program because it's an uncurated festival artists can express and uh, any kind of idea that they have but every year it seems there's a couple of key cultural concerns that emerge as dominant themes of the festival yeah there's a few this year one you know unsurprising but really important one is around climate change. Um, and in a way I've not seen in my five years at Melbourne Fringe, there's there's a, a real upswell of work around climate change. One of those is a work called What Am I Supposed to Do? Um, it's by uh, Beck, Rebecca Jensen and, and Sarah Aiken from Deep Soulful Sweats, who some people might know for their big participatory wild dance works. And they're creating a show called What Am I Supposed to Do? Which will take place at the Fairfax Studio at Arts Centre Melbourne that really really is asking audience members to take action around climate change. And uh, it is a participatory work, but in a really different way where it's directed live and audience members, you know, they they simultaneously create the set, you know, the, the costumes, the performances, uh, they move through the space as it happens. So, you know, that that's a really big work. Moira Finja Kane's uh, The Rapture Chapter 2 Art Versus Extinction um, absolutely is inspired by a recent trip she did to Antarctica that looks at the end of the world. There's a, a climate um, activist who's also uh, an ordained Buddhist. Uh, so, you know, people are really kind of, um, I guess, working in uh, taking their skills and really pushing home some really big messages. Um, there's quite a few stories that explore 
uh, I guess, personal confession or, or autobiography. Um, so, you know, that's really interesting in terms of people taking the opportunity to talk about perhaps moments of um, trauma or uh, tragedy that have happened in their life and to turn those around into nights of, of entertainment. So, for example... There's a, an artist who's, well, his stage name is, he goes by the name of Frank Hampster, um, who's created a work around, uh, so he was a witness into the um, the uh, Royal Commission into Child Sex Abuse, um, but he's created a comedy show about his experience. Um, and so called Cardinal Sins, A Pell in a Cell. And so kind of taking... Um, obviously some of the most tragic, terrible, awful things that can happen. But, um, of course, tragedy can often be a, a great starting point for comedy. If you've just tuned in, my guest is Simon Abrahams, the creative director and CEO of Melbourne Fringe Festival, uh, which is running from the 12th to the 29th of September. And tickets are on sale now at www.melbournefringe.com.au. Now, as well as the independent arts program, uh, Fringe kind of presents some of its own works as well. Um, One of them, which is getting people to speak to truth and about personal truths. Tell us more about this work. Yeah, the work's called Insert of the truth and it takes the form of a giant uh, a giant speech bubble it's a blow up inflatable um, sculpture that you can get inside and it looks like a, a, a big white cartoon speech bubble and it says the word truth in giant huge letters on the side and it'll be popping up um, around the city of Stonington, around Paran, and you go inside and your job is to complete the phrase or the sentence, the truth is, um, and you can answer. You've got two minutes to answer it however you like. It's a project, it's a global project that's been through the US, through Canada, through Mexico, through Afghanistan, um, through Europe, uh, and it's finally Melbourne's turn. What are some of the other fringe kind of produced events that are happening? Because obviously there's uh, things like the Fringe Club, which uh, gives you an opportunity if you don't know where to start with the the daunting 455 plus events program. The Fringe Club is somewhere you can go and get a bit of a sampler each night of what's on in the festival. And then there's usually some pretty crazy and absolutely extravagantly delightful parties there as well. But what else is Fringe presenting? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Club Fringe is definitely uh, a big part of the the festival. It's kind of the heart of the festivals in, in, in a lot of ways. So Yana Alana's producing a big party there. Little Ones Theatre are doing a, 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 a event called Rhythm Nation. Um, we have a Friday the 13th spooky party. Uh, so all of those things are happening in the in the club. Um, but yeah, around Melbourne there's an event uh, in St Kilda called Batmania which uh, looks at um, it's by a company called the, the Very Good Looking Initiative who, who you might know have been the kind of hit of the comedy festival recently. And they take you on a bus tour to look at some of the sites of St Kilda, uh, but uh, the notion that uh, that Melbourne, of course, uh, so-called founded by John Batman, uh, what if it had become Batmania? So it it, it puts a, um, a a mythical narrative onto the history of um, of our city uh, through kind of looking at landmarks uh, of St Kilda. There's also our program XS, which is our program of experimental, contemporary, and live art for children that we're presenting again. Um, with a project called We Are The Robots, where children go inside a a kind of inflatable dome and make their own robots uh, with kind of accompanying soundtracks to go with it. Uh, There's a a piece called Sonic Labyrinth, which is an interactive um, sound maze that children go through that's popping up at Artplay as well. 
There's an enormous amount to digest and participate in and see at the 2019 Melbourne Fringe. Um, as a final question, Simon, uh, maybe a penultimate question, actually. Um, how does Melbourne Fringe avoid some of the pitfalls that other fringe festivals have perhaps fallen into? Edinburgh Fringe is on at the moment over in Scotland, for example, the largest arts festival in the world, and it's a bit of a dog-eat-dog situation. It can be a tough grind for artists to kind of stand out from the crowd. Uh, fringe World in Perth, perhaps even Adelaide Fringe have also kind of become so large that there is now a pushback against them and an artist saying it's it's not worth registering, it's not worth participating because you're just going to make such a loss that you can't survive as an artist. How does Melbourne Fringe try to navigate so that it can grow as a festival but not grow at the expense of the independent artists who are its heart and soul? Yeah, absolutely. Well, for starters, I mean, growth is actually not the aim of the festival, which which perhaps is a, a difference. Um, you know, I think some other festivals are always looking at, you know, more and more and more. We're certainly interested in, you know, um, always building audiences, of course, but not necessarily building always the number of artists in the festival. Um, we've got 455 events this year and that's precisely you know, the, the, the number within five or ten events that um, we've had for the last six years. So growth is deliberately not the aim and that's because we think the festival's at exactly the right size. Um, and I think one of the major differences in Melbourne, and we're incredibly lucky, that we have the Melbourne International Comedy Festival that runs in April that is this massive big commercial behemoth that I adore, um, but it takes... Uh, it means we split the festivals in two and it means Fringe gets to be the space for independent theatre for the risky, experimental, strange things. Whereas I think in some of those other festivals, um, because they've got the commercial and the artistic together in one, um, they can really, the, the big kind of commercial operators can really swamp the independent artists, whereas in Fringe it really is a space for the independent artist and that's kind of what I love about the festival. Melbourne Fringe is running from the 12th to the 29th of September. The Fringe Hub uh, is a trades hall in Carlton this year. Other major venues include Gasworks Arts Park, the Butterfly Club, the Melba uh, and the Wonderland Spiegel Tent. Uh, melbournefringe.com.au for more details. Simon, as a final question, if you've never been to Fringe before and you are daunted by the program, what's your advice for navigating it? Is it just open a page at random, close your eyes, stab at a show and go and see that one and take a risk? Or what's the other... Is, is there a better way to navigate? It's not a bad start. I recommend three things. The first thing I say is flick through, have a look, look for a name that you might know, a show that's got a good review, a brilliant image, something that you feel pretty sure is going to be great. Book that. Go for it. Rule number two, pick something totally random. It might be in a strange venue you've never heard of, an artist you've never heard of, a blurb that makes no sense. Choose something completely random because that's how you'll have a fantastic fringe experience. And the third thing is pick something free. A third of the festival is free. There's huge visual arts programs. There's a lot of free performance. There's all sorts, you know, free club events. Pick uh, a free thing. So if you follow those three rules, pick something solid, pick something random, pick something free, you'll have an amazing festival. Melbourne Fringe, as we said, running from the 12th to the 29th of September. Tickets on sale now for uh, something like 455 events, except all of the free ones, uh, at melbournefringe.com.au. Simon Abrahams, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Last night at uh, the La Mama Courthouse Theatre in Carlton, uh, 
The new production Wild Cherries opened. It's a play written by Daniel Keane, directed by Bing O, oh, and both of them join me now in the studio. Gentlemen, a very good morning to you, and uh, I hope the heads aren't too fuzzy after opening night. Not too bad. Not, Not too, too bad. bad. <laughs> good. Now, just before I go any further, my traditional disclaimer about my conflict of interest with La Mama, I'm the chair of the Committee of Management. It's a volunteer position. Don't benefit financially from promoting La Mama events, blah, blah, blah. So, Excellent. Daniel, uh, yep. it's your play. Give us the elevator pitch. Oh, God, right. <laughs> I haven't been in an elevator for years. Um, what is it? Well, it's, a, it's got eight characters. Um, it's a story of, of well, you know, it, it's... It's drawing on 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 uh, modern day slavery or exploring that in a way. So these eight characters are, are trapped in a situation where they have to work, they have no freedom, they have to go where they're they're told, they have to do what they're told. Um, so they're essentially prisoners on this uh, inner cherry orchard, and it's getting towards the end of the picking season, and um, and there's a rumor going around that's disturbed about what their fate might be, what's going to happen after the season, and so they. They make a plan to try to get out of the situation that they're in, um, but that's that's you know what the plot is. But there's not much. The plot is not something that interests me usually, so that's the plot. But but the play itself is is a series of stories told by these people. They're fragmented stories because their lives are fragmented and broken, and they've lost their history and they don't know their future. So that. I suppose the purpose of the play, given everybody has heard of modern day slavery, is that is to give it a human face. So, because when you talk about things like slavery or people like refugees or people on Manus or wherever they are, they're anonymous. You don't know who they are. The government makes sure we don't know their names, so that they become just statistics. They don't. They're not real at all. Um, and so you can kind of forget about them in a way. But by doing this, by creating characters that can relate to the audience, can speak directly to them. They, we give them, well, these are fictional characters of course, but we give them a human face. So we draw a little bit closer to their dilemma and perhaps that's something then to think about. It's that power of fiction that it can make kind of real something yeah. that is unreal and, as you say, give a human face to something that is otherwise easily forgotten. It seems that governments learnt far too successfully the, the lessons of the Vietnam War, do not show what yeah. is actually happening mm. and thus reduce kind of uh, people to, to un-people yeah, exactly. effectively. Yeah. Um, Bing, for you as a director, why did you want to kind of direct Wild Cherries? I think I wanted to work with Daniel first and foremost um, and um, he suggested that we start work on a text of his which was a much shorter piece that he had written for the Sydney Theatre Company. I think in its original form was about 25 minutes and um, we grew it from there. We developed it with uh, uh, the cast of actors over about a one and a half year period. And uh, the, the short answer is I wanted to work on this play because I love Daniel's writing. I've been aware of it since the Keen Taylor days and uh, I've seen a lot of the shows which have been on in Melbourne. Um, yeah. Yeah. And for people who haven't seen your work, Daniel, there's a, a kind of a sparseness to the writing. There's a, a poetic aspect to the writing as well. Um, and despite the fact that the the subject that we're talking about here, contemporary slavery, mm. is a fairly bleak subject. You've also, and often do, inject humour into your work as well. Mm. Can, talk to us about getting that kind of balance of between the the bleakness of this, the issue you might be exploring versus personalising it and 
injecting kind well, of levity. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the thing, the, the the subject matter is serious, yes, and bleak, you might call it. But the thing is that it's it's also trying to make it human and, and, and being funny, even in the worst sort of circumstances, is a very human reaction or a human response. So that, and it's also in, in the writing of the play, I've all, I always think of humour or is a, as a kind of invitation for the audience. If people can feel that they're allowed to laugh or this is funny and, and it relaxes, it actually relaxes people and they're more open to what, what you're showing them and then you can really kick them in the guts. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, so it's an invitation for people to be open to the work. And um, and also it's a, it's a ma- like simple things like light and shade in a play and you know you don't want it to be unrelentingly something, you want it to have rhythms and colour and and all that sort of thing, and that you know the humour in this play where where it occurs is often quite unexpected, um, so it's not like people standing up telling jokes or anything, but but things happen that that are funny um, because these are people re- interacting with each other, and things happen. They say things. The situation gets odd, you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So there is a kind of lightness in it. I mean, there's one scene in the play last night. I, I don't want any spoilers, but it's there's a scene near the end of the end of the piece where you know, something happens and it's quite joyful and the audience spontaneously started applauding. The play hadn't ended, but this thing that happened kind of, it, it had to be applauded, you know, and that was wonderful to feel that the audience was engaged that much that they could respond immediately to that, to that moment. It was a terrific, terrific moment. Beng, talk to us about the process of working uh, with the actors and, and making this play happen. Because the, for me, the, there's a, an alchemical magic in theatre. You take a script, something that exists on a page, and then you turn it into something that happens live before our eyes and there is emotion and there is magic in the room. But it all begins with the with that text, not unless it's a devised work, obviously, but in this instance you have a text you're working with. Talk to us about working with the actors to bring this script to life? Well, I think Daniel uh, gave us a challenging text to work with. For those of you who know his writing, um, I don't know, it's dramatic poetry, but there's definitely, it's poetic. And one of our very early challenges was uh, coming to terms with the form of the writing, the you know, I even uh, devoted uh, some rehearsals just talking about the prosody of the of Daniel's uh, words. Uh, it's very pared down and it's heightened. There's nothing superfluous about it, and um, it's starting from that basis that we finally. F- found the form of the piece um, because of the sort of text it is, it doesn't move in a conventional way either, so I had to say directorially, um, it's been a really good challenge, it's been a bit of a wrestle to find uh, a form uh, that feels satisfactory for this, that can contain the world of this play and it's not just me, the designers are Ben Keane on sound, Emily Collett uh, on costumes and set and Shane Grant on lighting have uh, done a really beautiful job to um, echo the simplicity or the um, it's yes, just that the architecture of Daniel's writing is uh, it's beautiful and uh, finding a way to reflect it on the stage was uh, challenging for everyone but I think we've done it, like I'm really excited about it, there's nothing superfluous in our staging either, we use really simple elements and uh, likewise the actors um, I think have been very disciplined with themselves. Um, they bring the text to life, uh, 
but in really simple, direct ways. They're very expressive actors, that's the other thing. Talk to us about uh, working with the actors. You, you've talked about kind of struggling with the script a little bit, grappling with it. To, uh, um, to what extent, uh, as a director, are you um, kind of open and engaged and collaborative with the actors, uh, listening to their ideas and bringing them into the work, as opposed to the, the kind of cliche of the auteur director who kind of shapes everything themselves? I think I'm way too indecisive to be an auteur. <laughs> I warn all the actors I work with that when I start a rehearsal process, it's a real exploration. I have a sense of my starting point, what I think is important, but I virtually never have an idea of what it's going to look like at the end. And um, I work best with actors who don't panic when they hear that. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm pleased to say all eight actors. And I should mention, they're really diverse. Uh, These actors uh, in ages and training and shape. Um, I think about the only thing they've all got in common is about height. I don't know how, but they're all pretty much the same height. (laughs) (laughs) Is that was a casting thing. You had to be a certain height, otherwise you're out. Daniel, as a writer, talk to us about the collaborative nature of theatre because uh, when you entrust a script into another director's hands, there's always the chance that you may feel they've misinterpreted your yeah. work, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would imagine that in with this production, uh, Wild Cherries, you've been in the room uh, some of the time as well. Is that the case? Yes, yeah, some of the time. I mean, I think that, um, you know, once, once I hand the script to the, the actors and the director and the designer, it's no longer my job. I've done my job and, and now it's up to them to make something of it that I couldn't make of it because I'm not a director or an actor or a designer. So they have to take it further than I can imagine. But, but to, yeah, in this process I was in the room early when we first read the play and then, I, then we had a, a few days of development or workshop development and at that point I was still writing it. So because it was a short play and I'd expanded it into a full-length play but then during those early days of rehearsal and, and exploration, I was redrafting it all the way through. And then as as I got to know the actors um, and watching them work, I rewrote certain things specifically for those actors um, because I could see what they were doing and, and what was attractive about their work, where they, what their strength was, what I thought would really suit them. This is the thing I used to do with the Keen Taylor Project, that because we had... Uh, a floating ensemble of actors, I could, I could sit there and go, well, OK, we know we're having X, Y and Z in the next season. I'll write something for them because I know what... Well, I think I know what they do and I think I know how to challenge what they do. When you say you write something for them, does that mean you're changing the rhythm of a, of a, a sentence or a, or a scene, for example, because you know the way that they will kind of speak the words? Yeah, I mean, it's a matter of, of what their voice sounds like, how they breathe... Um, the, you know, the, the tone of their voice, the pitch of it, the, te- the tenor of their voice, but also what they're investing emotionally in, in the rehearsals. You know, you can see what they're bringing to the, to the work, the kind of discipline or the, the backstory that they're making up for the character or what they're drawing on f- from their own life to bring into the rehearsal room because all these things happen. So um, there was one very interesting was, you know, why we're having a cup of tea uh, Carmelina de Guglielmo and I were—I've ta- known her for a long time—and she was talking about, 
you know, this old people's home and this old woman and blah, blah, blah and saying prayers and praying in Italian and, you know. And it was a beautiful story about this home and so that when I was redrafting her scene, of course, this this I thought of this because when she told me the story, it was really moving and really beautiful and meant a lot to her. So I found a way to to use that and put that into her character, just this little anecdote. And it's, a, it's only a slight thing in her character, but it's from her experience that I put into that into that character. So that, you know, for me, the, the text, when I give the text to the cast and the director, it's as finished as I can get it 99% of the time. It's, it's the best I can do. But then you have to, as a writer, I need, really need to hear it spoken by actors because it's very much like if you wrote a piece of music but you never heard it played, it would be terrible. So I have to hear it. And then that for me is the final phase of the, of the writing. Once I've heard it, then I can do further work because it's, when you write for the theatre, you're writing for voices. You're not writing for the page. You're writing for voices in space, in time. So you have to experience that. Bing, as, a, as the director of Wild Cherries, I would imagine that it also helps you enormously that as a director, you know Daniel's voice, you know his style. So even though you haven't directed this play before, you're familiar with his kind of his tone and his voice. Does that kind of assist in directing a work like this? It most definitely does. I've read a lot of Daniel's scripts uh, in the lead up to going to rehearsals for this. And I think very alive to the musicality of his writing. Uh, a lot of my process and how we worked with it in the rehearsal room is uh, I treated the text like a score and uh, Daniel is very specific about scoring his writing and uh, yeah, so I feel like a conductor with some incredible musicians working on a beautiful piece of music. The play is Wild Cherries and is running from the 14th until the 25th of August, Wednesdays at 6.30pm, Thursdays to Saturday at 7.30pm and Sundays at 4pm at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre, 349 Drummond Street in Carlton. Tickets are just $30 for adults, $20 concession. You can book by calling 9347... 6948. That's 9347 6948. Or online at www.lamama.com.au. And maybe while you're online and on the website, chuck an extra few dollars towards the Rebuild La Mama campaign as well, because we have another theatre that we need to uh, resurrect from the ashes. Daniel Keane and Beng O, oh, thank you both for joining us. Thank you, thank Richard. You. And Chookers for the rest of the season. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.